Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members. And we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. My guest this week is Joe Mahaffey. I had the pleasure of meeting Joe back in March at Fight CRC's Call on Congress and quickly learn that Joe is doing just some amazing work to honor his brother's memory. His brother passed away from colorectal cancer, and Joe is just doing some spectacular work. And be sure to stick around after my interview with Joe for my interview with Dr. Prasanth Reddy, who is the Vice President of Medical Affairs for Foundation Medicine. Foundation Medicine just received FDA approval for the first FDA-approved broad companion diagnostic with Medicare coverage across all solid tumors, something very exciting, and I was thrilled to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Reddy to learn more about this uh, new diagnostic. But in the meantime, join me now for my interview with Joe Mahaffey. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. I really appreciate you doing this. How are you? I'm well, Lee. Thank you for having me. It was so great to get the chance to meet you up in uh, D.C. Uh, back in March at Call on Congress. That was my first foray into it. I think my head has just stopped spinning, uh, but what a great experience uh, to to not only be able to participate in that event, but that was my first experience with the Fight CRC community. And I was just blown away. Um, tell me about uh, you know your involvement with Fight CRC. Well, you know it's it's funny you mentioned that because you know like you that was my very first time uh, working with C uh, Fight CRC as well. Um, I had found out about that. I was I was chairman of the Get Your Rearing Gear race in Charlotte this year, and I got to work with a great team of people to help pull that off. And through that process, I was asked, would you like to do a call on Congress? And, um, you know, my brother, Doc, had done it several years ago when he was fighting his colon cancer. So I was like, well, yeah, I got to do that. And I was like you, just totally blown away uh, by the experience and the, and the great people that were there and the great work they're trying to do and really just trying to find my place in, in all of that. It was it was a it was a life changing experience, I got to say. Also be attending my first Get Your Gear event. They're coming down to Orlando May twentieth, uh, I believe it is. And uh, this episode actually is going to come out after that date, so I will have completed my first Get Your Gear and Gear. As people are listening to this, <laughs> uh, That's but awesome. they're just terrific folks there, and uh, Ann Carlson and Sarah DeBoard. Uh, our, our sponsors of the uh, Colon Cancer Coalition, sponsors of of the podcast, and truly appreciate their support. And uh, and like Fight CRC, they are doing terrific work as well. Tell us, tell us about Doc and uh, how this all happened. Yeah, wow, um, it's going to be a little harder than I thought. <laughs> so, um, 
back in August of 2010, uh, Doc was just a few months into his 50th birthday, and he had a had had an unrelated health scare, and in the process of trying to figure that out, it was discovered that he had some small polyps that were an issue, if you will. And um, those were taken care of, but over the next year or so, he kept getting checked every three months, just to be sure, you know. And um, unfortunately, uh, you would get a diagnosis that was clear, and then a little bit of time would go by, and there would be a recurrence of his cancer. In fact, I think I think he kind of talked about himself as being a, a four-time survivor, maybe three. I should remember that kind of stuff for, for things like this. But, but suffice it to say, I, I can recall at least three or four times that the, the cancer reoccurred. And, you know, the thing I love about my brother Doc is that he was a guy that never looked at something like that that was happening to him personally and say to himself, why me? He was the kind of guy that said, okay, help me understand this and let me get involved on how to fight this. And so, you know, he got really active in, in the community, uh, meaning the, the fighting colon cancer type community. And the rest of us were sort of drawn in by his, his spirit in many respects. Sure. He was your older brother. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm the youngest of five kids and um Doc is truly the middle child. And so, you know, we're all we're all stair step kids three years apart. And so when I was growing up, he was the older brother in the house. So he was the guy that I, I really looked up to. And, you know, as you can imagine with a large family, people tend to spread out across the country. Well, Doc stayed local and and I stayed local. So, you know, we we're able to not only know each other as siblings, but know each other as, as adults. And, and our kids grew up together and, and, and it, it's just, it was just a great, you know, relationship. And when he got cancer, it was just something that, you know, drew us a lot closer uh, together. The true big brother, little brother kind of relationship growing up. <laughs> In other words, did he pick on me? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about Mahaffey's is that we're all very uh, joking people and we pick on each other. And uh, that was definitely part of the experience. But it was the kind of thing that uh, you knew that as as much as you got picked on by your siblings, if anybody else picked on you, you circled the wagons and said, no, what I remember calling Congress. I can pick on my little shy guy standing in the corner. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'm I'm working on that. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it's funny. I I never really, you know, as much as I I cared about Doc and was was with him when he was fighting his cancer, I, I really never thought that I would go through the different phases of getting involved here that that I've gone through. That you know, what was your first foray into this, and 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 you know, what was your process? Well, you know, to, to, to set that up, I, I want to bring up two other stories, if I could, that very quickly that will lead into that. So um, early in my life, earlier in my life, like around 1999, a dear friend of ours 
in, in our church here in Charlotte, a man by the name of Todd Carruth got cancer and had ultimately passed away from that in a very short amount of time. And that was really my first experience with cancer. And then uh, somebody else that I had worked with for a long time had developed a brain cancer and, and passed away a few years later. And, and, and I bring those stories up because Todd in particular really set my, my frame of mind in terms of how to view people that are, are challenged by cancer. And when Doc got it, you know, my first impression was, oh my gosh, you know, and then as he, you know, survived different milestones of being cleared, if you will, and then it would come back, it, it just seemed to be this, this unrelenting kind of pursuit uh, with him. And because I had been shaped sort of by those earlier experiences that really I think made me a better brother and and ultimately a better caregiver uh, when we got to that point. So I, I kind of want to set that up that there were some early stages that that had sort of impacted me personally with the, the idea of cancer, but it had just kind of been in, in places that that I didn't expect would ever come home to my family, if that makes any kind of sense. And then, but but really where it begins to take off is. Um, in, in November of 2012, I, I vividly remember this. I was in a waiting room at a hospital here in Charlotte, waiting for do, one of Doc's surgeries. And Pam Gwaltney, who is a nurse navigator at Novant Health here in Charlotte, um, was out, you know, taking care of us in the, the waiting room. And it was there that I first learned about the Get Your Ear and Gear 5K. And I'll be honest with you, I had never run in my life. <laughs> and uh, I had made some health choices myself when Doc got sick to say, you know, I want to lose weight. I want to get my blood pressure down. I want to do these things. And a, a friend of mine at work, uh, Steve Walker, had challenged me to run a 5K. And I was like, no, no, I'll never be able to do that. But when, when Pam put that on my radar screen, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. And uh, I did a little, you know, couch to 5K app and learned how to run and did my very first 5K in March 2013 uh, for the Get Your Ear and Gear. And, and the reason I set that up is, you know, we just finished our fifth one um, back in March. And when um, I got involved, I was like, OK, I'll be a I'll be on the team and I'll be a team captain kind of thing with Doc. And Doc and I were co-team captains for a few years. And, you know, he got through the surgery at Novant and got better for a while. And then it came back around again. And he went up to Sloan Kettering and had a much more aggressive surgery and um, came back around again. And, and it was clear that, you know, he had kind of reached this point of, you know, that's all that they can do. And and Doc was sort of like this guy that was like, well, I will choose you know, the quality of life over anything else. And so as we kind of rounded into what turned out to be his last year, I decided to to get involved with the committee, naively thinking that I could sit beside him and pick up the things that he couldn't do because he was getting sicker. And what I realized at that point, or what I realized through that journey is that as people 
go through that and your family and you're a caregiver, everything else around you kind of shuts down and you focus on that. And that was um, impressionable on me later when I became involved in the leadership of the committee of this last year, because I keep finding ways that we can sustain the race uh, and sustain activity beyond, you know, the, the, the ebb and flow of people who are fighting illness, if, if that resonates with you. You know, on the one hand, I, I feel like when I got involved, I told the, the team I wanted to spend one year kind of trying to, to document what goes on in the race so that it can become sustainable. Not that they have to follow the blueprint every year, but that there's a foundation that sort of has captured the great work that Doc did when he was on the committee and Sue Falco did when she started the race now 10 years ago. Uh, started the race in Charlotte anyway, brought the race to Charlotte is probably a better way to say it. Um, and make it sustainable so that people can go forward. But, you know, the, the other reason I, I, I got involved in the race is because, you know, Doc really cared about two things. He cared about awareness. He wanted people to get screened as soon as they possibly could. In fact, it would be funny. He, he, he never had a problem going up to somebody that looked like they were north of 50 and saying, Hey, have you had a colonoscopy? You know, which was, you know, sort of who he was. He was about as shy as I, I am. Right. <laughs> and then the other thing was he, he really cared about advocacy. And making sure that the the legal the legal side of our culture meshed with the medical side of our culture, so that we can really tackle not just this cancer because all the research and all the focus that we have really impacts all cancers. And I, I think that that was something he became very engaged in. And it wasn't until um, I got this sort of join him side by side and, and sort of be there that I, I kind of got that same uh, bug, if you will, about how do we, how do we tackle this going forward? You know, how do we make that the experiences that we've had mean something to other people um, by helping them either a get screened and avoid this or B have the right kind of research and care that if they have to go through it, that it's a, it's a chronic issue or it's an issue that can be, cured completely. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, hope in those ideas. Sure. You know, what, one of the things that, I, that always has jumped out at me at the various conferences that I've attended, and then we, you and I experienced this at Colon Congress when I think it was on, my days are all running together, I think it was on Monday, that during lunch, they had all the guys go have lunch separately. Mm -hmm. all maybe 20 of us of the close to 200 that were there. And that was the topic of conversation is what is up with the fact that even though this disease affects men and women fairly equally, that when it comes to participating and advocating and speaking up, men are way in the minority. Uh, I had Paul Shalon uh, a few episodes back. And, uh, and he also was at call in Congress, and uh, we had a similar conversation. I'm just kind of curious as to what your thoughts are and if you and Doc ever broached this 
topic? You know, it's a, it's a fair question. We, we never really broached that topic per se, because honestly, I, I, I can't say that it was visible to me, um, a, a gender disparity and, and advocacy um, or, or, or even openness, because, you know, around here, I don't think it manifests itself quite in that way. However, I do think that it's harder for people to talk about. I still think there is this negative stigma um, about colon cancer that culturally, you know, some people are are, are ashamed of uh, or shy about. I, I don't know what's the right word um, for that. But the fact that it is such a unprejudiced kind of disease, it doesn't care your age, your gender, your ethnicity, it's there. I mean, you know, Doc was just 50 when he was diagnosed. And when we were at Packet Pickup, I, for our race in March, I met a 19-year-old who had just been diagnosed two months before with colon cancer. And it's like, you know, if it can affect 19 to 50, we got to find a way to, to catch that sooner rather than later, you know. Anyway, that's 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 kind of where I'm I'm taking this now because I, I told Ann Carlson you you mentioned her a little bit earlier in this this discussion. I said to her, you know, I, I enjoy doing the race. I'm going to continue to do the race. I want to be a part of that, but I want to take on advocacy. I want to take on how do we get these bills that we were talking about when we were in Washington, like HR 1017 and and Senate 479 that closes that that loophole and and um, the Affordable Care Act for um, colon cancer screening and, and what happens beyond. I'd like to see a bill that says you don't have to wait till you're 50 to get screened. You know, uh, I would like to see a product like Cologuard, and I'm not endorsing them in any way, shape or form. I, this is a podcast. I get that. But but right now, it can't be prescribed unless you're 50 years old, unless it's a really special circumstance. That, to me, would be a, an obvious way to, you know, screen people a lot sooner um, in a less expensive fashion that's designed to get people determined should they even have a colonoscopy. I, again, I'm, I don't have a thought around the right way to do it. I just feel like we got to do something, something different to, to, to try to bring this under control and, and save lives uh, in the long run. I couldn't agree more. I often see people posting in the various Facebook groups talking about their struggle to stay hydrated. And if that applies to you, you should check out H2ORS. H2ORS is an oral rehydration solution. It's a medically accepted alternative to IV hydration. So for those of you who are struggling with this issue of staying hydrated, either due to an ostomy or perhaps chemotherapy, H2ORS is something for you to consider. It'll really help replenish your fluids and electrolyte levels. As a matter of fact, it has three times the electrolytes of most of the popular sports drinks without the excess sugar, artificial flavor, or artificial colors. My buddy Chris Shaw over at H2ORS is offering listeners of the podcast an opportunity to try a free sample of H2ORS. All you need to do is just go to their site, h2ors.com forward slash sample, and they'll ship a free sample out to you, no strings attached. And when you're ready to make your first purchase at h2ors.com, if you use the coupon code CCPOD, they'll give you 10% off your first order. 
Be sure to stick around at the end of this interview for our new Ask the Doctor segment and to learn how you can get your rear in gear. Doing something different. The first thing I noticed when you and I met was you had a eye-catching pin on your shirt. And I know there's a story behind that. Tell me, tell us about that. Yeah, so so the pin is a blue ribbon with wings. And it is a it is a image that my brother designed uh, that we call the Blue Ribbon Warrior because that was Doc's moniker. He was the Blue Ribbon Warrior. And so at his at his funeral, we gave everybody a pin, that pin at that time. But what was really interesting is is about a month or so before he passed away, a family friend, a guy named John Powell, had worked with a local state senator, or excuse me, a state house member, uh, Bill Brawley in the state of North Carolina, to uh, draft a bill that would in, that would create a colon cancer awareness license plate in the state of North Carolina. And uh, although the bill was written before Doc passed away, it was passed maybe three or four months after Doc passed away. And what's the reason I bring that up is that that particular image of the Blue Ribbon Warrior is on the design of the license plate. And, um, you know, as you, as you can imagine, getting a license plate approved is one thing, getting enough people to buy the initial lot so that you can get it in production is a little bit more difficult. And, and we kind of had to get through the, the aftermath of Doc's passing to figure out how do we mobilize and, and organize uh, to make that happen. And, and that's, that's kind of where we are. Still uh, in a work in progress, so to speak? Still a work in progress. I, I have a website, um, the Blue, Blue Ribbon Warriors, uh, org. I should know. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I want to say, I'm going to double check it here while we're, we're on. Yeah, it's blueribbonwarriors.org. And uh, that's where you get information about the license plate. Uh, but I tell you, after, after going to the, to the call on Congress, I, I had a number of other ideas of what I can do to help promote this. And and really, the, the best part was meeting other people from other parts of North Carolina, not just the Charlotte area where I live, that can really help me build momentum around this. Because, a, a, you know, a, a license plate is a state thing, not just a, a locale. I'll, I'll definitely put a link to uh, BlueRibbonWarrior.org Blue into the uh, show notes of this podcast so people can find it. You bet. So, unfortunately, Doc didn't see this come to fruition. What do you think? He'd been fortunate enough to actually see the bill go through. Reaction would have been. I think he would have been very proud. I think he would have been very gratified. I think he would have said, "Okay, now let's do something with it." You know, it's one thing to say you got this. the The main thing is, well, how do you get it out there from an awareness perspective? And you know how it is with these special license plates. Um, you know, there's a fee that's designed to go somewhere, and he would want to see that plugged back in. To the communities in North Carolina focused on those things that, that are really empowered by his things that he cared about. You know, he was about screening and not everybody can afford screening. And so he would want the funds to go there and uh, he would be wanting it to go towards surgeries because, you know, people that need the surgery can be very expensive. And, um, you know, he would want that to be covered by it as well. And then 
he would also want the wellness uh, components covered because, you know, people that are going through cancer or surviving cancer, they have wellness needs that are beyond just their cancer. There are other types of needs that they get into. In fact, um, Doc and Sue had come together. Sue Falco, who was one of the founders of the race, had come together a few years ago and created a grant around the Charlotte race called the, the Cost of Cancer Grant. And it was really designed to help people that were going through cancer bring some normalcy to their lives. So maybe their child wanted to play football or or wanted to do dance and they couldn't afford the fees that are associated that because with that because they had to pay for cancer bills. And so they would have these grants designed to help pay for those kinds of things. Or or maybe it was even so simple as, gosh, you know, they couldn't pay the power bill. And so they would want the funds to go to cover that. And that still exists. So there are these things that are part of his legacy that that are empowered by the things like the Get Your Ear and Gear race. But he would also want that license plate to be the means to those kinds of ends as well, because it was never for him. You know, it's like I said at the beginning of this, it was never about him. The, the, the reason we called our team the Blue Ribbon Warriors, as opposed to Doc's Warriors or anything like that, is that he didn't want it to be about him. He wanted as many people to join the fight together and not just make it about him. And that is so who he was and so much of the mission that, that I want to help take forward is inspired by. I get it. And it says, certainly says a lot about personality and how selfless uh, he was. Old experience change you, Joe. Well, I, I honestly did not know that I was going to have a passion for advocacy. You know, I went to the call on Congress not really knowing what to expect. I had gone through the experience with Doc, changed by that. You don't lose a sibling by not being changed in some fashion. And honestly, when he died, I had so much to do to support so many people. I don't know if I really had the chance to mourn or honor Doc until I went to the call on Congress, which it feels funny to say, but I think it was a cathartic experience for me. And when I got the revelation to myself that, gosh, this is really what I care about, and what I want to do, I told, I told Ann Carlson, we were sitting down in the lobby and I was telling her, you know, how I was moved by the event and kind of what I wanted to do. And she looked at me and she goes, Doc always hoped that somebody would take up this mantle and this is what they would do. <laughs> and yeah, well, I didn't know that. You know, it's one thing if he says to you, hey, I want you to do this for me. It's another thing if you kind of find it on your own and then you discover that it's in alignment with what he was hoping would happen. I don't see how you can experience that and not feel changed in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, great question. Um, you know, I think that right now I've, I've applied, uh, to be a fight CRC ambassador. We'll find out if that happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to continue to promote advocacy from my spot here in North Carolina. Um, I think we have a lot to do, um, from an awareness standpoint. And the thing about this situation is that there's, something at every level that needs to be done. And if I can, you know, recruit, cajole, inspire, 
influence, um, any of those levels, I, I will feel like I've accomplished something. If were to tune into this podcast, Joe, having recently learned that someone they care about, a friend, family member, loved one, was recently diagnosed and they, like yourself, are suddenly thrust into the caregiver mode, what tips would you share? Well, I would say um, be optimistic because on a journey like this, I mean, docs was six years, which is a long time in some instances and a very short time in others. But there was so much in that six years to cherish. But there is also a lot of advances in that six years that made six years possible. So I would say be extremely hopeful. I would say also, you know, be willing to be very honest because you know, when Doc and I would talk, we were very honest. He knew the risks and we didn't pretend they didn't exist. And and I think it would have been, I think it's an insult to anybody to pretend that they don't. But I think the best that you can do is is be that rock, to be that rock that also has the ability to be vulnerable and that rock that has the ability to just love that person unconditionally. Because all those things, will serve you through that experience. And if you open yourself up to it, there will be some aspects of that experience that will change great you. Great advice. Joe, it was great to kind of continue the conversation from from Washington uh, during this podcast. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to talk about your journey and docs. And uh, just thank you for all the great work that you're doing to honor him, preserve his memory, and uh, to benefit uh, those of us uh, still fighting the battle and to raise awareness for those uh, that unfortunately will come behind guys like him and guys like me who, you know, will be diagnosed. And uh, I'm sure that the work that you're doing and will continue to do will make a difference for a lot of people. And I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I am Joe Mahaffey. I am with Lee Silverstein, and we have cancer. And now, my conversation with Dr. Prasanth Reddy, Vice President of Medical Affairs for Foundation Medicine. Dr. Reddy, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Lee. Uh, it's great to be with you today. Well, I know you're doing fantastic because uh, you have an exciting announcement uh, to share with us regarding uh, something really exciting that many of us cancer patients uh, I've been hoping here for a while, so go ahead and share that with us. Well, greatly. Uh, like uh, we had uh, discussed, um, this is an exciting time at Foundation Medicine. Uh, just recently, we had uh, um, received approval from uh, uh, Medicare, and, and basically now we have a national coverage determination for uh, a genomic testing platform that we offer called Foundation One CDX. Um, that same uh, testing platform has also already been approved by the FDA, uh, giving us uh, a high level of quality uh, for detecting clinically meaningful uh, DNA changes that could impact a cancer patient's treatment. That's exciting. So why would a cancer patient want to consider something like genomic sequencing? Well, I guess the first thing to start with is just how uh, the medical field and physicians are currently looking at cancer itself. 
Um, just a few years ago, we would define cancer as the site of origin or where the cancer originally started from. So that would mean that a lung cancer versus a breast cancer versus a colon cancer was uh, defined by where the cancer actually originated from. But in today's world, we're quickly finding out that what's more important is understanding the DNA changes, the specific alterations within an individual tumor that defines that tumor, how that tumor is likely to uh, continue to um, grow is defined specifically by those DNA changes. And the challenge is how can we accurately um, and practically um, you know, detect those DNA changes so we can impact a cancer patient's treatment. Interesting. So really a whole new way of looking at it. Yes, absolutely. This is a, um, you know, this is a, a sea change in how we look at cancers and um, it, it's truly exciting now that we have tools like Foundation One CDX to help uh, uh, basically detect these uh, DNA changes. So when in a patient's course of treatment would be the appropriate time to get this sequencing done, sequencing uh, completed? So what's interesting is, is that this particular question is one that's been uh, discussed at length among, uh, you know, many key stakeholders uh, in cancer care, including physicians, scientists, policymakers, payers, patients. Um, and what we're quickly understanding is that in many cases, at a minimum, um, every single cancer patient that has metastatic cancer should sometime in their cancer journey um, have this testing available for them. And in fact, um, my personal opinion is that um, the earlier that this kind of testing is done, um, the better the likelihood that a cancer patient um, is going to have more tools in their toolbox available to them. And frankly, um, I would also say that even if the testing is negative, it's not a waste because it still gives us plenty of information to then still um, tailor a particular patient's um, treatment decisions. Um, as far as using this technology uh, to detect DNA changes in a cancer patient's um, genome, uh, that becomes a little bit more of a nuanced question. And what I would say is that uh, certainly for stage three cancers, those patients are also often considered advanced cancer patients. And um, I would just point out that that national coverage determination um, now offers coverage for all advanced cancer patients as being defined as uh, stage three and stage four cancer patients um, if you use Foundation One CDX. Interesting. Now, I know that there's different types of genomic tests out there. What are the main differences? Well, the main differences really uh, get down to uh, the science, the methodology, the validation of these testing platforms. And so, um, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, it's very, very important to understand the methodology behind the different testing platforms. For example, um, you know, some older testing platforms include, you know, immunohistochemistry, uh, FISH, fluorescence in situ hybridization, uh, as well as PCR-based techniques. 
these techniques are still important. They're still used in, you know, day-to-day practice. Um, what uh, I would say is that in today's world, there are newer techniques, more robust techniques that for a, a number of reasons, both because of their comprehensive nature, as well as their ability to um, essentially uh, look at a number of genes all at the same time, could potentially also improve turnaround time as far as getting results back to the physician, uh, could also potentially improve cost as opposed to sequential testing, um, and again, uh, accuracy. Uh, the newer techniques like Foundation 1 CDX to assess these genomic changes are based on a hybrid capture method of next-generation sequencing um, that is essentially what we would consider um, comprehensive genomic profiling. And so the bottom line here is, is that while there's a lot of confusion and murkiness, and there is sort of a role of using... Um, you know, earlier platforms like IHC, PCR, and FISH, the newer forms of detecting these changes uh, through uh, DNA sequencing platforms like uh, what Foundation One uh, CDX does is more accurate, more comprehensive, and um, honestly gets those results in, hopefully um, back to the physicians uh, sooner and more accurately so those treatment decisions can be made. Another thing that I would um, point out is that um, there's also a distinction between um, where you're testing for those DNA changes from the cancer. And now we have the ability not only to test uh, for DNA uh, genomic changes in the tissue, uh, where often patients are diagnosed with their cancer through a tissue biopsy, but now we're also able to detect tumor DNA with liquid biopsy meaning that we're able to get genomic changes that a patient may have within their tumor with just a blood test that then detects the DNA uh, from the tumor itself. That's a big deal. So I know you were uh, excited to receive that coveted FDA approval. Why is that so important for genomic testing? Well, so uh, Lee, I would say it's twofold. One, for us, um, it was a challenge. Uh, nobody else has ever done this before to get this companion diagnostic, um, you know, approval from the FDA across multiple tumor types in one single test. And it really sets a benchmark. Um, what's really important in today's world is that testing is as important as therapeutic selection and what we established by going through this FDA approval process was that Foundation One CDX has a level of quality that's um, really, really important so physicians can trust the results they're given. Now, in terms of coverage, what kind of coverage is available for patients who are either covered by Medicare or, say, private insurance? Yep, that's an excellent question, Lee. And like I said, there's two big buckets uh, to the last question. The first bucket is quality, making sure that when uh, physicians uh, get a result from DNA sequencing, that it can be trusted because of the analytic and clinical validation behind the testing. And that's what F1CDX has done from the FDA approval. Now to your second question on coverage, this is all about access. And so we can have a test that's very, very high quality, but if patients can't get access to it, what good is that test? 
And so this is the second sure. part of why F1CDX is so important because now patients have access. And so what we're talking about is any cancer patient that has an advanced cancer diagnosis, regardless of the site of origin of the tumor, now has access to this really important technology um, if they're a Medicare or Medicare Advantage patient. Um, the third-party payers are still working toward um, their own decisions as far as whether um, they're going to cover this testing. But for right now, um, the coverage approval is a national coverage approval for all Medicare and Medicare Advantage patients that have advanced cancers, regardless of tumor type, um, with a stage three or stage four diagnosis. I see. And what do I do if I'm interested in getting this done, but my doctor doesn't offer it? Well, so Lee, what I would tell you is, is that, um, you know, patients today are very educated um, and you have to be your best advocate. And what I would encourage all patients to do is bring up this conversation with their physicians and ask them these questions. And really, it's about that individual relationship that patients have with their physicians and feeling comfortable that you can ask these kinds of questions. You know, I don't think uh, uh, my, my personal opinion is that, you know, like I said um, earlier, that all patients going through their cancer journey, certainly those patients with advanced cancers, um, it should at some point have access to this technology. And so the simple way I would approach that question is feel free to talk to your physician. It's about getting information. That's the job of physicians is to educate their patients so that the patients can make the appropriate treatment decisions. And our job as physicians is to be uh, a patient's best advocate. Where can patients go online to get more information about Foundation One CDX? So to that question, um, we do have a website. And so if you just go to foundationmedicine.com, www.foundationmedicine.com, you should be able to uh, access patient-specific information by just following um, the menu options at our website. And that's a very, very good starting point. Um, then that's where I probably recommend folks go uh, to start with. Um, there are a number of other um, really good resources out in the web, um, and certainly you should uh, take advantage of um, patient advocacy groups such as the American Cancer Society and um, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and other patient advocacy groups and see if they can also assist in getting patients um, information about cancer genomics and how to get testing completed. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to include a link to the site in the show notes uh, of this episode. Well, Dr. Reddy, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. Really exciting uh, and helpful information and uh, appreciate you sharing it with, uh, with all of us. Yep. Thank you so much, Lee, for this opportunity. And again, uh, we're really hopeful that this will have a great impact on patients and the care that they receive. It sounds like it will. Thanks again. Welcome to Ask the Doctor, where your questions regarding cancer and cancer treatment are answered by Dr. Tim Cannon. Dr. Cannon is with the Inova Medical Group in Fairfax, Virginia, and he's a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in gastrointestinal cancers. Dr. Cannon, thanks for being with us this evening. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Thank you. So on the last episode, you touched a little bit about clinical trials, and I want to ask you, and this question comes up quite frequently, what exactly are clinical trials, and when is the right time to talk to my doctor about them? And thirdly, where can I get information on trials? All right. So a clinical trial is a system or program where you get a treatment that is still being evaluated for its safety and effectiveness. Uh, So for instance, if a a researcher has developed a new drug that he thinks will be great in colon cancer, he has to run it through three phases of clinical trials, phase one, phase two, and phase three. And uh, in the course of those phases, it will be determined whether the drug is safe and whether it's effective. Um, And so uh, there are thousands of clinical trials in the world ongoing for cancer. And um, these give people a good opportunity to get the newest drugs. Uh, But of course, um, there's always some uncertainty about whether those drugs are going to work or not. Despite that uncertainty, it's important to recognize that outcomes of patients that join clinical trials have generally been better than those who don't. Uh, The second part of the question, I believe, and um, Uh, tell me if I am misremembering that, is when do you ask about a clinical trial? And I think it's appropriate to ask for a clinical trial at any time. But it is important to understand that most clinical trials are available to people who have already been on one standard treatment and the cancer has grown anyways. And so most clinical trials are are for second line treatment or beyond. But there are many exceptions to that. And I think it's appropriate to ask at any time. Uh, the third question, uh, third part of the question, I believe, was how do I find out about clinical trials? I touched on this a little bit in the last uh, podcast, but uh, the first thing is ask your doctor. You know, your doctor may have some clinical trials, and he may be aware of what clinical trials are, lo- are local. And uh, he'll also be able to give great insight into what clinical trials he thinks are the most promising. If you feel like the answer you got was incomplete, there are many services which try to help match patients to to clinical trials. Uh, These include the National Cancer Institute website, where if you search cancer clinical trials, you'll see sort of a pop-up box emerge with a phone number where you can call a hotline that can help match you to clinical trials. And there are a lot of other clinical trial and second opinion services like Driver and Emerging Med which can help, uh, are also hotlines that can help match you. Great. That's very helpful, Dr. Cannon. Thank you so much. No problem. Here's your update on Get Your Rear and Gear events taking place across the country, presented by the Colon Cancer Coalition. Coming up on Sunday, May the 27th in Wichita, Kansas, is the Get Your Rear and Gear 5K run and walk and one mile fun run this is taking place at farm and art market plaza on friday june the first is the caboose cup for our friends in bloomingdale illinois this is taking place at the bloomingdale golf club a wonderful golf event to support the colon cancer coalition on saturday june 9th we have the Tour de Touche bike ride for our friends out in Allentown, Pennsylvania. This is taking place in Grange Park. 
Also on the same day for our friends in Little Rock, Arkansas, is a Get Your Rear and Gear 5K Run Walk and Kids Fun Run. That is taking place at Burns Park. And then wrapping up June, on June 23rd, for our friends in Rochester, Minnesota, at East Silver Lake Park, is the 5K Run Walk and Kids Fun Run, another exciting Get Your Rear and Gear event. Thanks to our sponsors, the Colon Cancer Coalition and H2ORS, for your support. The podcast is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.